Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. When Felicity Carter called me this year and asked if I wanted to go with her to Media Fest 2022 in Washington, D.C., I had no idea that we would be walking into a room of 750 seasoned journalists and incoming student journalists. Today, we sit down to discuss what we learned, the state of journalism now, insights from the conference, what it takes to make it in content these days, oh, and some insights from five days of eating and drinking in the U.S. Capitol. This is a no-holds-barred chat between wine friends, and we invite you to come along. Let's get into it. Good morning, lovely Felicity. How are you? Good morning, Polly. I'm very well. How are you? I am recovering. You and I got home on Monday, and it is Thursday. And um, yeah, it took a little while to to get caught up on some sleep. DC was a bit of a whirlwind. I went to bed and I slept for 13 hours straight. And then the next night I slept for 10 hours. That's how much sleep I missed out on while we were in Washington. I mean, I suppose that's probably indicative of a pretty good uh, sojourn, as it were. I'm maybe getting a little bit too old for it. But I wanted to scoot you in today because you and I have just spent a week in Washington, D.C., where we went to a conference on journalisming. As we that's are. right. And we went, we went on holiday by mistake. It wasn't quite the conference we thought it was going to be. It, it was a little, but it was, it was definitely worthwhile. The humor in it is I had to become a registered journalist in order to get into this conference. You of course are, are an absolute old hat journalist. So I, I think that I was the tag along. Um, there were, you know, you and I sat, we talked about the content of the conference. We talked about the experience in DC and even insofar as on that plane back home, there were like these, oh, things that we're reading coming out of America are maybe starting to make sense. And I thought that it would be interesting both for our writers and our wine writers, but also for our drinkers and, you know, just like general trade people who listen to, to hear some of um, that experience. So that's what we're doing today. Right. So what kind of conference... What kind of conference did you take me to, Christy? Well, it was the Society for Pro- Professional Journalists in the USA. Um, but what they didn't add on their website was that it was also, uh, they'd hooked up with the Student Journalists Association. So it was primarily for student journalists, not for professional journalists. So we went there and we suddenly found that we were surrounded by 19, 20, 21-year-olds all eager to learn how to be the next uh, Woodward and Bernstein 
Well, and, and that is the clincher. That was how you got me on that plane, is that the keynote for the event was? Woodward and Bernstein for their 50th anniversary of their coverage of the Watergate scandal. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. They were awesome. Um, they didn't come until the second day. So we get in there, we're surrounded by all of these students. And I remember just being like, hmm, okay. <laughs> but actually, there were some things that I loved about it. And I'm going to start off by saying, it wasn't cynical. No. You know, it, it was hopeful. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, it was very American in the sense that uh, American journalism still, you know, rightly sees itself as one of the legs of democracy. And so the, the whole conversation was very elevated, actually. It was very idealistic about what journalism can be and what the best of journalism can be. Um, so, so being Australian and, you know, the, the only journalism conferences I've been to in Australia were for freelancers where almost relentlessly for three days you talk about money. Who's paying what? Where can you find the money? Who should she be pitching? Um, how can you patch a living together? And, and they didn't cover any of that, which... I thought they should have covered some of it, but they did They did do a lot of talking about the role of journalism in society and what your responsibilities are, which was really, was really interesting, actually, and it was quite inspiring. Were there any big takeaways? You were like, oh, I knew this, but maybe I've forgotten it, or I, I don't keep it front of mind as I'm undertaking my own journalism. Because, of course, we all know you for the work that you do in, in wine. <laughs> But you write well beyond, I mean, you write for science, you write for The Guardian, you've written some very interesting pieces for The Guardian that have had um, much feedback from the reader community. So you are not just a wine writer. Well, one of the things that, that really I took away from it was one of the things that came up in the Woodward and Bernstein keynote where um, they were talking about the difficulty of getting, uh, you know, this was a vast scandal involving the very top of government and they couldn't get people at the top of government to talk to them, of course. So what they did was they went and they interviewed people who were much lower down the scale and that's where they got their big stories. And I think it was Bernstein that said always interview people at the bottom, not at the top. And I think about how in wine we're always interviewing people, and I've been guilty of this, always interviewing people at the top, the people that own the chateaus, the people who are the CEOs of company, but we don't go out and interview people in the workplace or in the vineyard, and that's really something that we should do. Um, it's a great segue, actually. You released an article today that perhaps that applies to. You released an article on the glass industry um, that was maybe not the easiest information you've ever gotten, you know, out of wine. Did you say no. that something like that, that's starting at the bottom and just like the tenacity and that just don't give up, keep going for it. In that sense, it does apply to wine, right? That's right. So I was looking at the price of glass bottles and how the invasion of Ukraine has driven up the, the price of glass for all kinds of reasons, particularly the price of gas. And I tried for several weeks. I could not get anybody from the glass companies to actually speak to me. I mean, I was led up all sorts of blind alleys. I tried all sorts of things. I tried making up email addresses to see if I could get through. And eventually I thought, you know what, I'll just go and talk to people who are affected by this. And that's when the story came together. I didn't actually need the big players in the end. I just talked to people, um, you know, who are affected by it, who are trying to buy bottles, and, and you can tell there's a terrible problem. My takeaways really quickly on this. Um 
Wow, wine puts on fabulous conferences. Yeah, they do. I, I don't, know. We have much better food. <laughs> we have food and we've got good alcohol and we're all very congenial, you know, like, and, and of course we live in such a tiny, tiny bubble in wine, but it was that we have, um, we have excellent conferences. And also I think as presenters, because there are a fair few of us who do, who do this, right? Um, not that we're necessarily MPS scored as, as people are walking out of the room, but we know that there's this element of entertainment that we have to bring. But for the most part, you know, we go in and we're like, right, what's my narrative arc? And what are people going to get out of it? And, you know, just a bit bit of showmanship um, well, that I did not see. No, we did not. But I think there's a couple of reasons for that. So first of all, professional conference organisers are very aware of giving, you know, value for money for the, the people who pay to come along and see it. Um, and so they score you when you go and speak. So if you want to speak again, you know that you have to be fairly highly rated or, you know, you die in the dust out the back basically. And the second thing is that more and more conference organisers are asking you to give takeaways from your speech that they can give to people. And so you have to think really hard about how the audience is going to use the information. And that was that was sadly lacking among some of America's finest journalists who are great writers and, and, uh, and great on camera. One of the things that I thought was super interesting is the extent to which the conference focused on social media and newsletters as just a, a absolute must for professional journalists and for publications. I know that you had some thoughts on those sessions. I did. Well, I, you know, as, as you know, because we sat there discussing it with a, a professor of broadcasting who was telling us about the social media um, session, I actually felt that they went off on the wrong direction. So to give an overview, um, students went along to a session where they were told how to brand themselves as journalists, including, you know, finding fonts that they could have on their website that they should put on their business cards to choosing colours to building their social media following. And I, I really disliked this. I think the intrusion of marketing into something that has nothing to do with marketing bothered me. So what this professor was saying was saying, yes, but if you want to get a job, you have to stand out and editors will look at how many followers you have because they want to commission you and they want to know that people will read your stories. And actually, I've been a commissioning editor for 15 years and it's the other way around. We don't care at all about somebody's social media following, but we do care sometimes about the social media followings of the people we interview. So this is our dirty little secret. Sometimes we interview people knowing that if they share it on social media, we'll get a big a big bounce. But certainly, you know, if you're a journalist, the only thing that matters is the quality of your work. Nothing else matters. Okay, so in kind of a roundabout way, um, that makes me wonder, does the person who I want to interview and they themselves have, you know, 200,000 followers or in wine, 50,000 followers, are they looking at the number of followers I have when they're deciding if they're going to grant me that interview? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you come from a publication that you know, they look at Google Analytics and it doesn't have that many readers or whatever, you, you, you won't get the interview. Whereas if I send out an email that says media request Guardian USA, I get people, you know, I get people calling me in the next 15 minutes going, I'm ready now. You can interview me right now. Come on. I can I'm in. I'm good. I'm good to go. Um, okay. So we're going to, we are going to bring this around to wine because I was like, why are they going to continue talking about journalism? One of the things that I noticed about it was um, across all of the sessions, introduction and moderation. 
Yeah. And that, that being a real skill, I know that you do an absolute ton of mod work, especially in wine conferences. Um, was there anything that just really grounded you for when you're thinking about the importance of being a good mod or how you engage with both the audience and their Q&A, but what the audience is there for? And that's, that's the message of the panelists. Yeah, we saw that we saw that in some of the keynotes where you had a moderator who had an agenda that you know she wanted to get she wanted to hit certain points by the end of the hour. And so the the interviewees were actually going off in a different but very interesting direction and instead of letting them go, she cut them off at a really interesting point so that she could hit her agenda. And I was thinking what a mistake that was, that sometimes you just have to let the conversation go in ways that you didn't plan. And, you know, that that spontaneity will always be more interesting. Not always. Sometimes you have to rein it back and pull people back in. Um, but, you know, I think you saw it as well, that, that sometimes that that rigid insistence on, uh, you know, I've got my script, we have to stick to it, actually led to a less interesting conversation. Do you think that journalists now or more specifically content writers are going forward with a more clear-cut agenda for what they want to get at the end of the reporting? I think another way of saying this is more people are attempting to control the process in ways that aren't helpful. And it happens on both sides. I've often interviewed people who, um, you know, will insist on trying to stick to talking points um, because, or, or, you know, sometimes you send off a media request and you get this big long answer back written, clearly written by the corporate department saying, please attribute it to so-and-so. I never use that stuff because it's so artificial that, that actually they damage themselves by trying control the conversation like that or or I interviewed somebody the other day and I asked him a question and he used it as a as a way of trying to advertise his services and again I'm not going to use those answers So, so I think I think this increasing tendency on all sides to try and control and manipulate the conversation is really backfiring. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it does, because then it, then it leads me to the, the um, issue of independence, right? In fact, going back to the Woodward and Bernstein um, talk, one of the things that really stood out was that they had this fabulously supportive owner and publisher, Catherine Graham, who just had their, you know, had their back in everything they did. How much does the leadership and does this apply to wine as well? How much does that leadership really matter in how the story's formed, how we communicate it, how we engage with our audience? Uh, It's critical. So one of the things that happens is, um, a lot of people will try and insert themselves into a story or they'll try and use a story as a form of advertising. And it can be very hard for journalists to push back against that, particularly if you're sitting at lunch and you've accepted hospitality. Um, the, the, um, the urge to turn a piece of journalism into a piece of publicity can be overwhelming or the pressure to do that. And that's really where you need an editor who pushes back and says all of this is going to be stripped out. And it, it means that you don't have to... Um, to be making all the hard decisions yourself. When someone's got your back, it really it really helps you um, navigate some of those things. You know, especially for young journalists, it's really hard to sit there in front of a much older person, particularly an executive who's got a very powerful personality who wants to insert things into the article. And if that journalist knows that their editor won't tolerate that, it gives them a lot more power in the in the conversation than they otherwise would have had. Not to deride our bloggers, um, but do you think that this is possibly one of those fundamental differences between uh, 
staff writer or a journalist or someone who's submitting to an editor versus someone who's blogging, because in blogging, it's a lot harder to fall back on the, you know what, this is going to get stripped. My editor's not going to allow it. We have a policy, you know, whatever that might be. Yeah, I think it's that. I think also there's a couple of other issues as well, which is that when you're when you're doing it solely for yourself, um, you know, as, as writers or creators of any kind, we, we all have the temptation to be self-indulgent and just keep going and going and going. And I certainly give into that when I am not being edited. Um, and what an editor will do was it, is will force you to focus and strip out the things that aren't aren't relevant, which is much better for your your writing or your photography or whatever. The other thing is um, it is much harder to resist the pressures of you know, hospitality and so on when you're just when you're just there by yourself. Um, it's much easier to fall into the sort of what I think of as the copywriting voice where you end up writing publicity for them rather than, um, you know, writing a, a, an article. Having said that, there's lots, of, there's lots of really excellent bloggers who are really well aware of that. So um, it's, it's how much so you're... So it's not a blanket statement. No. So, okay, moving more into wine, one of the things that really stood out at me and that I saw as an opportunity we, um, you know, people look at us and be like, so what are you doing here? What, what, where do you work? And our answer is, well, we work in wine. And first there was this, ooh, wine. But then there was a, wait, you mean you can be a journalist just yeah, in that's wine? Yeah, right. They were blown away by that. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Oh, well, that was, I mean, that was really interesting. And of course, um, you know, we were in this room where people were talking about democracy and about totalitarianism and so on. So, so when you say I work in wine and they go, oh, tell me about it, you don't immediately go, well, I sit around all day and I, I taste wine and then I, I score it or any of that. So, so I kind of, um, I kind of found myself bigging up the the topic a little bit, and so I remember standing there talking to this very wide eyed kid about how um, grapes were one of the first signs of climate change and how they're very sensitive to what's happening in the world. And if you if you if you follow grapes, you can learn a lot about climate change and so on. So, so I was getting into the more serious side of wine, and actually, as I was talking about it, I was thinking this is a really serious subject to report on. And and he was like, "Wow, wow, I should think about doing that as a career." And I was that point I was going, yeah, don't, don't, <laughs> it's no money. But, but that, but that's a thing, right? Is that I, I think, I mean, we've talked about this in so many different ways, both you and I privately, and as well as amongst guests on the podcast, we as an industry perhaps don't present ourselves so well, or we don't have the opportunity no, to present ourselves as this is a great way to work. This is a great way to make a career. It's no longer the era of the booth babes, right? We're the only people who get hired. We know exactly. I'm making physical indications of what I'm talking about. Um, and, and, but it's not just that it's not just wine. It's that all trades, you know, trades have their niche writers, their experts who coming back to what you always say can be both entertaining and does it provide value informative. That's right. Be informative, informative and entertaining. So as we do in any good conference, wine or not, um, there was a fair bit of eating and drinking that went on, or we attempted, we attempted, I I don't think we accomplished it. Um, And that was one of the things that I really wanted to take some time and talk about. So we've talked about all the journalism stuff. 
for years, I've been looking at the data and it's Washington, D.C., one of the strongest emerging wine markets in America. You know, we're, we've been looking at the D to C data coming out as well as the retail data. And here I am. I was so excited about eating and drinking in D.C. Um, and man, it just... It it didn't stack up. It did not, no. Uh, let's yeah. Culinary wasteland was the What do you think that because we're a wine podcast, right? And we're all about to go rock up to wine to wine on the day I think that this comes out. Um what were your thoughts, Felicity? Well, I was really struck by how beautiful the city of Washington is and how clean and how pristine it is. And it's it's such a magnificent city. I mean, we walked up to the Lincoln Memorial, we walked to the White House, we did all of that. It's a spectacular city. We were 500 um, metres from the White House, our that, hotel, like right. we were, and we were across the street from the Hermes store. We were in a really good part of D.C. That's right, and it's such a walkable city, and it's the, the kind of place, I mean, we were walking past not just government offices but also the International Monetary Fund, we were walking past think tanks. So this is a city that is just full of people who have high education, money, taste and so on, which you would expect to be a city that therefore would offer, you know, good food and wine. This is what and I thought was important, independent wine lists. That's what I noticed was missing. So we were in... Uh, very nice, you know, hotel. Um, I won't say where, but we were in a very fabulous hotel. And the wine list, we didn't have hospitality service that could describe what we were having on the list. They couldn't help us make uh, decisions around it. And even what was on the list was really representative of what we consider industrial wine. And I, and I think the reason for me as a marketer that this was really important is that we hear, we read everything about the reduced, you know, alcohol consumption in the U.S., not enough young people picking up alcohol, more and more uh, people moving toward natural wine. And when I was sitting there and I'm thinking, well, if your only day-to-day -day experience with wine is one of these industrial, just like, they don't even taste like wine, no wonder you're going to a different product. My first night in my hotel, which again was in that kind of good area of Washington, it was a very expensive hotel. Um, I went downstairs and I was I was too tired to go out, so I, I ordered a hotel dinner, which was salmon steak, and then I ordered a glass of Chardonnay. And she couldn't the, the waitress couldn't tell me what the Chardonnay was or where it was from, but I thought, okay. So and it was I've tasted wine like that before because every year I go to the bulk wine fair in Amsterdam. And this was bulk wine. Um, it, it was wine that if it if it cost two euros a litre, I would be really surprised. And yet it was sold to me at $15 a glass. And then I said to her, Well, what's the rose? And she said, It's a pink wine. And I was like, well, okay, where's it from? And she said, it's from France, at which point I thought, oh, okay, no thanks. Um, so the next night I said, I'll have a gin and tonic. I was down in the bar writing an article. And she said, okay, do you want Bombay Sapphire, Tanqueray, do you want Hendrix? I mean, she knew all of the gins and they were all commercial gins, but she knew what they were. But she had no idea how to describe these wines that she was serving. And they were $15 a glass. And the whole you know, palette probably wasn't worth $15. So that to me wasn't somebody somebody at head office who was thinking about how to surprise or delight customers, whatever. That was somebody who was thinking, 
how can we extract the maximum amount of money for the minimum amount of effort? Really cynical wine buying. And and if that's what if that's what people are exposed to at a top hotel, like yeah, exactly. No wonder. No wonder when the first time they try natural wine, they go, "Wow, this has got some flavor." Well, and also the person who's serving a natural wine has we know by virtue of serving a natural wine has put more thought, more effort. There's an independent list. You know, we don't have bulk natural wines that are ending up on, on hotel list. Um, and, and actually it's interesting. So I don't want to mention the name of it, but we also, because we didn't just stay in the hotel, we did go out to one of the top ranked, uh, top ranked, excuse me, champagne bars in DC. Yeah. Georgetown. And, um, what, so again, For me, this was putting a lot of what I'm hearing coming out of America, coming from my clients into perspective. So things like you saying that it wasn't clean. Well, we've all heard about the issues of labor in America. We all know someone in the wine industry who's having a hard time getting tasting room staff. Like, So, okay, realizing the tangible impact of labor is maybe we've got these huge restaurants size-wise that require a lot of labor and industry, and we can't actually fill it. In the case of the particular wine bar, what completely floored me is here we are in Europe talking about the language of sommelier, you know, certifications, non-certification, wine education, who's this for? We've got a very, very deep list and nobody on staff is able to speak to that list, you know, from the first thing that you see on it straight through. Why? Why do you have these things on the list? What is it? Or I'm looking for something of this kind of flavor profile. So again, it, it just comes back to, I think for me, a really, um, a, a clear understanding, a more clear understanding of a lot of what we're hearing coming out of US news. Kind of bringing this all together because everybody sat here and heard us have a, a friendly rant on this. Um, from the journalism part of it, where we're sitting in wine right now, you have you, just today. It's come out that you are the international mm-hmm. editor for oh, yeah. Star Wine List, which kind of exactly plays into some of these things that we're talking about. How how do we, on the writing side, how do we actually make certain that we're not only speaking to our bubble? Well, I think the Star Wine List is actually uh, so it's it's based in Sweden and it's it's kind of. Um, you know, looking at and, and ranking restaurants by their wine lists rather than simply by their food lists and, and by location. And I think having having now been in Washington, I think it's an incredibly useful tool. I'm so glad that um, I'm associated with it. I, I think the thing I took away from the conference is they were talking about big things. They were talking about, you know, <laughs> political uh, dramas and, and, and whatever. And what they didn't talk about was they didn't talk about the little things like trade reporting and so on. And, and actually, the more I thought about it, the more I thought they should have because just, just getting on and doing the job and reporting on these small things is really important to people's daily life. Having a, a place where they can go and they can go, I'm going to this city, what's the best place to go? And they can look it up instantly, that's going to improve somebody's experience. Having a a trade publication that can report on, you know, glass wine bottle situation and warn you that you need to stock up in advance, that's so useful. Those things are just as important and need to be just as well done as the great big stories. 
and in terms of the wine drinker. How do we actually get this without immersing ourselves in the wine bubble? Well, actually, immersing ourselves in a wine bubble can do a good thing in one way, which is by having these conversations and having these public conversations, we might shame some of these wine buyers into doing a better job. That's really what needs to happen is um, that people like us who have a voice in the wine trade need to need to loudly and publicly say, whoever's buying wine for these wine lists, you suck, do a better job. I, I, I don't know what we can do because it, you know, it didn't help us, did it? We, we did look at all of the reviews before we went to those places and we were still I know and no and that's that's the thing that as a wine marketer worries me is that we are part of the wine bubble we tend to know what to look for we understand that there are certain markers like if you've got a 30 page champagne list you're probably going to have somebody there right you're probably who can talk about it you're probably going to have some good food whatever and realizing that even those of us who live in this bubble can have difficulty. What is a normal everyday drinker supposed to do in order to discover all of the amazing wines that are out there in the world? I, I think know, for I me think, it was very I enlightening. Be, I think it can't be on. So the, the problem with putting it on consumers is you don't know what you don't know. Like if you're a if you're one of those kids at the conference. You don't even know that there's great wine out there that you should be exploring. They didn't even know that it was a topic that you could um, you could report on. It has to be there to be discovered, and the only way that we can make that happen is by putting peer pressure on these people to make them well, better. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to kind of take a different tack on it, which is we've lost most of our staff writers, staff wine writers for newspapers. You know, it used to be that local newspapers and major publications all had wine included either separately or as part of their wine and food columns. So we don't have a lot of those anymore. Is it that we've got that taken out of the mainstream and now we're relying on advertising driven food and wine publications, which mean that our small producers can never, will never have a voice in those places. Yeah, well, the, the other thing is as soon as you make something into the specialist media, it means that only people who are interested in it will go after it. So you're right. Again, the discoverability has disappeared with the disappearances of columns. So you, you can't be just sort of browsing and, and trip across wine content any longer. Um, the answer to that is, you know, what's really interesting about that is over many years I've heard people say, oh, people aren't interested in reading about wine. That's why those wine columns disappeared. That's actually not true. Um, I, I started out writing for a, a pull-out supplement of the Age newspaper in Melbourne called Epicure, and it was one of the most read parts of the newspaper. You know, people would read it and comment on it. It disappeared not because people didn't read it, but because nobody in the wine trade supported it. Nobody would advertise in it, and so it couldn't pay for itself. And that's why it disappeared. And that's why all these other columns disappeared. It's not that people didn't read them or didn't want them. It's that the wine trade never advertised and supported them. And so they, they couldn't pay for themselves. Um, yeah. But the problem of, you know, the problem of advertising is, is absolutely huge. I think a lot of wineries particularly think that they can make up for the loss of print and the loss of wine magazines by, you know, doing their own social media. Um, and it's, it's getting increasingly difficult to get organic social media reach so um i don't know where I'm, i don't know quite where i'm going with this but i think what we're going to see you know where we're going we're going yeah. back to next year we're going to the same conference and we're going to find the top-notch young journalists who've all just turned 21 and we're going to say come on in we need you in wine 
come talk about the things that are interesting to you and help us get all the people like you who are drinking something loving our because that's it right we don't have we don't have them the fact that we had 21 year olds who like in some cases these were award-winning student journalists who knew nothing about the fact that you can go into we talked about aviation trade or magazines or wine trade or cars or watches or luxury or all the spaces where we do have niche trade publications and none of that is represented in that room so that's my big takeaway is that i was actually in love with the fact that we were in a room full of 700 you know combined senior journalists and students because it said to me we need we need them these are talented enthusiastic young people who were so jazzed by the idea that wow we could write about wine yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, we, so we need to take them all. We need to give them some wine education. <laughs> all right. So with that, um, we are about to go somewhere and it's appropriate for me to mention it on this podcast. Uh, on Sunday, I think it is, a lot of us head on the local plane, train or automobile and we head off to Wine to Wine, where the um, theme this year is communicate. Or it's listening. It's listening, it's- active listening. It's active listening. So we, um, we're we all going to not be taking photos of the slides and paying good, hard attention to that. And you will be speaking there. Um, yes, I'm going to be interviewing Alice Firing about her new memoir uh, and about how she escaped a serial killer. Ooh. All right. I'm down for that one. And um, and will that be your only stage presentation, your stage moment at Wine to Wine? Rebecca Hopkins and I are also doing a presentation on the state of wine media and um, how to Ooh. get yourself into the wine media. Awesome. Mm. That's that's brilliant. And will you wear spangles? Not this year, no. I'm going to do something different. <laughs> right. Well, we'll have to see what that is. Felicity, I know that you have a ton on your plate with um, with the new work that you're doing, but I thank you so much for your talk. Thank you, as always, Polly. And... That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. And a great big thank you to my dear friend Felicity for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.